want to welcome you to week one of a brand new series out of Mark's gospel account uh, that we have titled The Way of Jesus. Uh, This series is going to take us all the way to Easter, Uh, and while part of me would love to go through Mark's gospel line by line, this is not a joke. The truth is, if we did that, it would probably take about two years, and since we only have 14 weeks between now and Easter, the, the, the goal for this series is to move through Mark's gospel account, uh, specifically looking at passages that represent key moments and themes in the life of Jesus. And before we get into the passage that we're going to look at today, I thought it'd be worthwhile to sort of lay the groundwork of this series and let you know um, what to expect if you decide to join us. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, if you're aware of this, but uh, Mark's gospel account is actually the very first written account we have of the life of Jesus. And the reason that he, he wrote an account of the life of Jesus and the reason that, that uh, Matthew and Luke and John, uh, alongside him, wrote accounts of the life of Jesus is because about one generation after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the apostles and uh, the hundreds and maybe thousands of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus started to die off, there arose this danger that people would begin to mythologize Jesus and sort of decide for themselves who Jesus was. And so... In response to that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, pulled together the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, and they wrote down what we now refer to as the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the primary purpose of all the gospel writers and and, and Mark himself uh, is basically to present us with the real Jesus. What I mean is Mark's desire is to present us with Jesus as he actually is, not Jesus as we would really like him to be. And that, I want to offer to you, is just as necessary for us today as it was for the original recipients of this account some 2,000 years ago. I say that because, and and you, you you probably hear me use these terms all the time, you and I are living in what can be described and what sociologists would would refer to as a postmodern or late modern secular culture. And one of the hallmarks of, of post-modernity is this idea that, that uh, you hear a lot in our culture, even though it's a relatively new idea as far as um, you know, humanity's overall history is concerned. Uh, a, a post-modern culture like ours is a culture in which increasingly people hold on to this idea and hoist up this idea that truth is relative. I'm sure you've heard that before, which is really interesting because it's an absolute statement which is self-defeating if truth is actually... We won't get into that. My point is that uh, at an increasing rate in our culture, you hear people talk more, less and less about uh, the truth and more and more, I don't know why I can't say this without a smirk on my face, more and more about your truth and my truth. Uh, and as people living in that, uh, that culture, this culture, we'd be fools to not uh, at least assume that in some ways we're affected by that culture. And so um, living in this culture that, that sort of questions reality and hoists subjectivity up over objectivity, there's a tremendous tendency for us, whether we realize it or not, um, to sort of create Jesus in our own image. And then what we're left with instead of the real Jesus is just your Jesus versus my Jesus. And it's, it's fascinating that your Jesus never seems to confront or challenge or contradict you, and my Jesus never seems to confront or challenge or contradict me. 
Uh, he agrees with everything that, that we think. He would never call us to challenge our most deeply held convictions. And he tends to really dislike all the people that we dislike. The problem, of course, with your Jesus and my Jesus is that a Jesus that can't challenge you, confront you, or contradict you is also a Jesus that cannot change, transform, or heal you because, and this is important, he doesn't exist. He's not real. He's just a projection of ourselves. If you and I want to actually be transformed by Jesus the way the Word of God says we can be in 2,000 years of men and women having personal encounters with Jesus says we can be, what we need most fundamentally is the real Jesus. And that's exactly what Mark is writing to give us. And this might be a strange thing to hear, but I, I actually think it's fair to say that not only does Mark give that to us, but he does so more efficiently than any other gospel writer does. And I don't mean that there's you know, less Jesus in Matthew, Luke, and John. Obviously, it's all the inspired word of God. But, but there are some things that are unique to, to Mark's gospel account when held up along the, uh, alongside the other gospel accounts. Namely, it's the shortest. Uh, statistically, it has the least teaching about Jesus. It has the least teaching even of Jesus or by Jesus. Mark's desire is just to get directly to the point. So, for instance, if you read Matthew's gospel account, it begins with a, geneal a genealogy. Uh, you know, telling us where Jesus came from. You read Luke's gospel account. It begins with these really touching and, and kind of heartwarming warming stories that we talk about during the holidays of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. You read John's gospel account, and it actually begins with a retelling of the creation account of the entire universe. But Mark, uh, he just gets right to Jesus. He wastes absolutely no time. And so summary statement here, because we live in a culture that desperately needs the real Jesus, we're going to be spending the bulk of the beginning of this year letting Mark tell us and show us exactly who the real Jesus is. So I'm in Mark's gospel account, chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 8 and get started. And, and you'll see exactly what I mean when I say Mark does not waste any time. These are the opening words of the gospel account. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He just gets right to the point. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was preaching... Someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is God's word. So I said in the intro there, and I think you can see it now, that Mark doesn't waste any time. He just immediately uh, tells us who Jesus is. And the first way that Mark describes Jesus, he, he says that he is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That word Christ, it comes from a Greek, the Greek word Christos, it's actually a title. And what it literally means, what it's literally translated as, is either the anointed one or actually the anointed king. And so what I want to do on the front end of this series is spend some time um, pulling out three things from these opening words about this king. I want to look at who Mark, tells us, who, who Mark tells us this king is, first and foremost, who this king is. Secondly, where this king can be found, which is very fascinating to me. And then thirdly, why this king can be trusted. So first off, let's talk about who this king is. <clears throat> in verses 2 and 3, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, 
I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, That, as as Mark even says here, that is a direct reference to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 40, which is this prophecy that foretold of a day in which the Lord himself would come to Jerusalem in order to show the nations his glory, and that a messenger would go before him to prepare the way for him. So in this account, Mark is identifying that messenger that would prepare the way for the Lord with John the Baptist, and then of course he's identifying the Lord himself who would one day arrive with Jesus. Now just hang on to this. The Old Testament was written in, in, uh, originally in Hebrew. And if you go back into that specific Hebrew passage, that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, what you'll find when it says, uh, prepare the way for the Lord, the word that gets translated Lord in our English translations is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. It was a name, it was the personal name that God gave to reveal himself by when he entered into a covenant relationship with his people Israel. This was a name that was considered so holy by Jews in Mark's day and actually still by Orthodox Jews today that they would not speak it aloud or even write it down. It was considered that holy, that sacred. And so what Mark is doing here, and all I'm trying to do is get you to see this account the way the very first recipients and readers of it would have, what Mark's doing here in the opening verses of this gospel account is Mark Mark is saying, uh, Yahweh, the uncreated creator, the God who is so holy that we dare not speak or even write his name, the God who upholds everything by the word of his power, who depends on nothing and yet has all of, of being itself depending on him, Mark begins this gospel account by saying that God has entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that Christians sometimes refer to. I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, but we sometimes call this the doctrine of the incarnation. And immediately, you hear me say this a lot, but this already, just the opening words of Mark's gospel account is already showing us how Christianity is is saying something different than really any other belief system or religion or philosophy that people have ever come up with. And I say that because contrary to Eastern belief systems like Hinduism and Buddhism, which teach that God is the divine spark in all of us, and so the, the, uh, the incarnation, you know, the entrance of the divine into humanity is basically happening all the time. Every person that you look at is an incarnation of the divine into huma- humanity. Contrary to that, but on the other end of the spectrum, also contrary to what Judaism and Islam teaches, which is that God is so transcendent, he's so holy, he would, he would never incarnate himself. God would never take on a human form that's so beneath him. It's actually an offensive idea according to those belief systems. Contrary to all of that, what we're reading here in the opening verses of Mark's gospel account is that on the one hand, God is so, he's so holy and he's so transcendent that the, that the incarnation, unlike Eastern belief systems, it's not happening all the time because he's too holy for that. However, at the very same time, God is so loving and he is so intent on saving us that he did decide to incarnate himself, that the the, the divine did enter into human history once in the person of Jesus. And so what you have here with this idea of God entering into human history, this is sort of a category-defying, history-altering event that immediately sets Christianity apart. 
uh, it, it's, it's not, when you understand what's being taught here, this is, this is my only point so far, Christianity can't simply be held up alongside every other belief system as though it's just kind of basically saying a different version of the same thing. Just hang on to that. Now, all that being said, <clears throat> this idea, <clears throat> it's really quiet in here right now. It's, it's kind of unnerving. <clears throat> I, don't really, I don't really know what to do with that. Um, this idea of the, of the incarnation of God becoming a human let me just state the obvious. I wouldn't have to say this if I was preaching even a handful of generations ago, <clears throat> but modern people who are, one of the hallmarks of modern people is uh, we're very, um, you know, skeptical of, of any kind of supernatural reality. So modern people hear this idea, God became a person in Jesus, and they think, uh, okay, I get how 2,000 years ago people could buy that. You know, they were gullible, they were prone to believing these kind of superstitious, pseudoscientific things, but we're, we don't have a pre-scientific understanding of the world, and so you can't seriously expect anybody with half a brain in this culture to believe that, knowing what we know now. In saying that, I realize, of course, most of the people listening to me right now, you already do believe this. However, I know this. Uh, on any given Sunday, there are people that, that join us who are skeptical to the truth claims of Christianity, and I just want to say, if that's you when you're here, you are so welcome here. Thank you for, for coming. I try to communicate with you and mine. But even if you already do believe that, uh, you're already sold on, on of what, I, what I've been saying so far. I can basically say this with total confidence. You know and love people who don't believe it. So here's the question. If you say, I believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, and somebody close to you says, well, I don't, and, and why should I? And how could, how could you, and why should I? Uh, the question is, well, how, what are you going to say to them? How are you going to communicate your faith in an intelligent way to them and let them know that you can actually follow Jesus and believe the Bible without having to check your intellect at the door, which for whatever reason is something that I'm passionate about. What is your response going to be to somebody who says, how could any modern person believe that? Uh, it, l- let me give you an answer to that. <clears throat> and I do this first and foremost so that if you're a Christian, maybe this can strengthen your faith a little bit. But if you're here and you're still trying to figure out if you believe Christianity, maybe this will be helpful to you. Maybe you've never thought about it this way. Just follow me here. All of the original followers of Jesus... Every single one of the original followers of Jesus, including Mark, that's the one who's writing this account, uh, were Jewish. And Jewish people, even 2,000 years ago, I would offer, uh, they had just as many, if not more, barriers to believing what I'm telling you now and what Mark is writing here, which is that God could become a human. I, I mentioned one of them earlier, uh, that, that they, they held the name Yahweh, just the name of God in such high regard that they would not speak it aloud or even write it down. And that's true even today of Orthodox Jews. And so my point is, the idea that God could become a human being uh, they were just as, that was opposed to everything that they had been raised to believe. That's why, for instance, if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, you notice that, that when he was betrayed by Judas, this is hours before the crucifixion, and he was led into that midnight trial where he was blindfolded and the religious leaders were trying to execute him. They wanted him dead. They just needed to figure out how to jackknife the legal system so that they could kill him without blood on their hands. They couldn't figure out a way to do it until, if you've read the story, you know what I'm about to say, until they heard Jesus himself claim that he was divine. When they asked him, is it true? Are you the son of God? Are you divine? Are you God in the flesh? When Jesus said, you have said it, that's the moment the trial was over and they said, hallelujah, we finally have enough to kill this guy. So even 2,000 years ago, Jewish people, it's, it's, not, it's not just that they thought the idea of the incarnation was ridiculous, it's that it was deeply offensive to them. So, so understanding that, 
just, just follow the logic here, because I kind of touched on this last week. One of the greatest apologetics for the truth of Christianity, and this even has secular historians kind of scratching their heads, one of the greatest apologetics for the truth of Christianity is how seemingly out of nowhere, a vast number of Jewish people who were conditioned by their culture to believe uh, that the incarnation was ridiculous at best or, or, or you know, deeply offensive at worst, a vast number of Jewish people went on to believe something that their culture said was absolutely crazy, which was that the divine did enter into human history and that this poor Jewish carpenter named Jesus really was God. Not only did they go on to believe that seemingly overnight, and I'm talking thousands of them to the point it transformed the Roman Empire, but they did so even though believing in Jesus cost them their status in society, it cost them their, their uh, uh, relationships with people they loved. Uh, oftentimes it cost them, they had to forfeit all of their possessions. And then later on, for about the first 300 years of Christianity, it cost them their lives. Even secular historians have looked at that anthropologically, sociologically, and you stand back from that and you realize, okay, you have to come up with an explanation for that. Something had to have happened to get that many people to believe this. And basically what Mark is writing this gospel account to say, he's saying, let me show you why I and so many of my brothers and sisters went on to believe something that we once considered impossible. Let me show you Jesus. That's the whole reason that he wrote this account. That's just the, 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 the opening verses here. That's how you would have read this. And before I move on from this, just one final thought here. A lot of times when we talk about doctrine in Christianity, that seems like something that's you know, it's cold and it's lifeless and it's just, you know, something you need to kind of sign an agreement so you can be a part of a church. I just want to offer this to you. This doctrine of, of the incarnation, this teaching alone, if you take it into, your, in, in, into the center of your being, it has the power to transform your entire life. And the specific way that it, that it does that is the doctrine of the incarnation, it actually has the power to completely rewire the motivation of your and my heart. Let me walk through that. <clears throat> According, well, let me back up. Every human heart has some basic motivation. Every, every single one of us, if you're still alive, every heart has some basic motivation uh, that drives us to get out of bed in the morning and face life. Every single one of us has that if we're still turning oxygen into carbon dioxide. According to the Bible, although we can certainly be motivated by more than one thing, at, you know, it's kind of layered, According to the Bible, the deepest motivation of the human heart, of your heart and mine, on autopilot, is actually fear. And that goes back all the way to a story at the beginning of the Bible. I touched on this on Christmas Eve, so I'll be quick here. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're given this story where we're told the moment that sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve heard the sound of God's footsteps approaching them in the garden, they did something that they had never done before in their lives. They ran from God. Now, prior to that moment, the sound of God approaching was a source of great comfort to them. Scripture says they would walk with God in the cool of the day. But the moment sin entered the world, when they heard the sound of God approaching, they ran from God, they hid themselves, and they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. And Adam tells us exactly why in Genesis chapter 3, it's because they were afraid. Uh, and, and what that story is getting across is that from the moment sin entered the world, the most foundational motivation of the human heart would be fear. And to me, you, you can look anywhere in society and see how accurate that is. I mean, far and wide, human beings are motivated by basically just different versions of fear. We're driven by the fear of rejection. 
We're driven by the fear of failure. We're driven by the fear of not being good enough, of not living up to our parents' expectations or, or you know, expectations that we impose on ourselves. We're driven by the fear of missing out. We literally have an acronym from that now called FOMO. All of that goes back to what the Bible's telling us happened in Genesis chapter 3. And I say this to say what every other religion does, and, and really all any other religion does, is it simply aggravates that fear. It plays off of that fear without being able to still that fear. Because every single religion teaches, one of the things they have in common is this idea that God is out there somewhere and it's up to you and I to reach that God. And every religion tells us how we have to do that. So for instance, Buddhism says it's the eightfold path. Uh, Islam says it's the five pillars. Judaism says it's the Ten Commandments. Confucianism says it's filial piety. Hinduism says it's the karmic cycle of reincarnation. And as different as those answers appear on the surface, you zoom out, one of the things they all have in common is they're all fear-based. They're all motivated by the fear, and, and they really feed on the fear of the human heart. Because according to those belief systems, if I don't live a good enough life, if I don't satisfy the demands of whatever the God of that belief system is, then God's not going to love me and accept me and forgive me and hear my prayers and save me. And so all they really have the power to do is play off of the fear in the human heart. You hold up Christianity alongside of that and you see how different it is. Because when Christianity teaches, as it does here, that God entered into human history, that God came down here and lived among us, that God became flesh, what that means is that God has come to us. What the Bible's teaching is that the moment that sin entered the world and we walked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God knew we could never come back to him. And so the, 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 the story of the gospel, the message of the gospel is that God, knowing we could not return to him, decided to come to us in the person of Jesus. And in coming to us, as Mark's gospel and the other three lay out, Jesus didn't just come to us, he lived for us, he died for us, and he was raised to new life after his death in resurrection for us. And he did all that so that Jesus could offer us something that is completely unheard of in any other major belief system, which is this thing called salvation by grace. It's a salvation that does not depend on anything you do or I do. It depends on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so Christianity teaches that right here and now, you and I can move through life knowing that we have the love and the approval and the acceptance of God and we don't ever have to fear losing that because it doesn't depend on us in the first place. It depends on Jesus. That's what I mean when I say just this doctrine by itself can completely transform the motivations of the human heart. And so all of that to say that, that, that first off, and literally the opening words of this gospel account, what, what Mark is telling us is that the God that was prophesied about through Isaiah and the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God who in Mark's day, his very name was considered so holy they dare not speak it aloud or even write it down. Mark is saying that God has entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who this king is. <clears throat> I feel like I need to take a nap. <clears throat> but alas, two more points, church. They'll be quicker. The second thing I, I uh, said I wanted to get to, that's who this king is. Secondly, let's talk about, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever thought about even asking this question, but the second thing Mark tells us here uh, is where this king can be found. If somebody asks you where can Jesus be found, uh, how would you answer that question? The answer, according to these opening verses, is this place called the wilderness. 
Now, I read this to you on the front end, but you may have noticed that we're told here, John the Baptist preaches in the wilderness. Well, uh, that, that means that if people wanted to hear who Jesus was from a preacher, they actually had to go out into the wilderness. John was baptizing in the wilderness. That means that if people wanted to publicly declare their allegiance to Jesus through the act of baptism, they had to go out into the wilderness. And if you keep reading through just chapter 1 of this gospel account and the verses ahead, what you'll find is that Jesus himself, after his baptism, actually went out into the wilderness. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you, when you hear or think of a wilderness, but the word that Mark uses actually refers to a desert. And so what a wilderness is, it's a place that cannot sustain life uh, because there, there's no food out there, there's no water out there. Uh, it, it is, it's a place of exposure uh, because there's no shelter out in the wilderness. It's a place of extreme loneliness because it can't support a community. Basically, a wilderness is when you are you're forced to face yourself. Uh, you're forced to face how utterly weak and frail and totally dependent you are. And so what, what Mark's uh, uh, gospel account begins with is this idea that if you want to hear who Jesus is, if you want to begin to follow Jesus, if you want to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus, if you, if you want to find out who he actually is in a life-changing way, you're going to have to go into the wilderness. And that's not just something we see in the first eight verses of Mark. This is a theme that you actually find all throughout Scripture. I'll just give you a couple examples of this. First off, Moses. Moses' most famous encounter with God, I'm sure you're aware, was when Moses encountered God in the burning bush. Uh, But you notice Moses didn't encounter God uh, in the burning bush when he was living in Pharaoh's palace. He did so out in the wilderness. So you you zoom out from Moses' life there, and this picture's being painted for us that before Moses was ready for a life-changing encounter with God, he essentially needed to be stripped of all of the comforts and all the amenities and all the niceties and all the privileges that he had experienced growing up in Pharaoh's palace. He needed to, to, to physically and metaphorically enter into the wilderness before he was ready to hear from and have a life-changing encounter with God. It's no different with Elijah. I think Elijah's probably his encounter with God that, that, that he's most well known for. It's most famous. You probably heard this phrase before, even if you weren't raised in church, is this idea of the still, small voice. That's exactly what Elijah experienced with God. That was what his encounter with God was like. And it sounds so comforting, and it's such a beautiful image, but if you, if you really look at Elijah's life in context, where, what was going on in his life when he experienced that still, small voice— what is crystal clear, just thinking about this this week, it's really moving to me, that Elijah at that time in his life was experiencing what I think can only be called clinical depression. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 19. He literally lost the will to live entirely. He was literally asking God to end his life for him. And the reason for that, you read the story, is because Elijah was coming, he was coming to terms with something in his life that I think before our time's done here, we're all going to have to come to terms with, which is that his life was not going to go the way that he thought it was supposed to go. More than anything else, Elijah, probably the, the core desire of his heart was to see through his ministry the revival of his nation, the revi- that his, the hearts of, of his countrymen would turn back to God. And Elijah in 1 Kings 19, when he heard that still small voice, he was brought to this place where he realized in a very painful way that he was never going to accomplish what he so desperately wanted to accomplish through his ministry. That's what was going on in his life. And if you read it in 1 Kings 19, what you'll find, interestingly enough, is before he could hear that still small voice, Scripture says he needed to take a one-day journey 
into the wilderness. And it's no different with the nation of Israel in general. The nation of Israel did not become the people of God in Egypt. They became the people of God when God brought them out into the wilderness. And they wandered around for years. That's the place they were when they began to understand what God expected of them and what life under his lordship and kingship would look like. It was in the wilderness that they experienced the faithfulness of God as as God fought battles for them, that they had no business winning on their own, and God provided food and water for them in all of these miraculous ways. It It was that time in the wilderness that prepared them to become functionally the people of God that were ready to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And I'm I say all this to say that what the Bible's trying to get, get across to us in all of those stories and, and so many more that I could name is this idea that generally speaking, you and I are not ready to have an encounter with God until he brings us into the wilderness, until we have a wilderness experience. So let me ask the million dollar question here. What exactly is a wilderness experience? How do you know if you're having one or if you've ever had one? What I want to do is read a story of what one sounds like. So I've I've quoted from this book before. This is Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I read this back in the summer. It's written by Pete Scazzaro, who pastored up up in New York. He might pastor still. This is an incredibly important book for me, and I could not recommend this strongly enough. In this book, he tells a story about a woman named Sheila Walsh, and I highlighted it. I knew I I wanted to share it with you, and and here's my chance. So Sheila Walsh, Christian singer, writer, and former co-host of the 700 Club told her story of how in 1992 her disconnected spirituality caused her to, quote, hit the wall. And if you read this book, you'll realize that when the author talks about the wall, he means the same thing that I mean when I talk about a wilderness experience. Here's her words. One morning I was sitting on national television with my nice suit and inflatable hairdo The 9 a.m. got a kick out of that as well. One morning I was sitting on national television with my nice suit and inflatable hairdo, and that night I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital. It was the kindest thing God could have done to me. The very first day in the hospital, the psychiatrist asked me, and I wonder if anyone has ever asked you this, who are you? I'm the co-host of the 700 Club. That's not what I meant, he said. Well, I'm a writer. I'm a singer. That's not what I meant. Who are you? I don't have a clue, she said. And he replied, now that's right. And that's why you're here. That's what a wilderness experience sounds like. It's a situation in your life. Uh, It could be brought on by an event. It might be something that spans several years. Maybe it's both at the same time. But it's a situation in your life um, when you realize that something that you've looked to as your real hope, uh, something that you've looked to as the fuel that your life runs on, something that you've looked to to make your life worth living, or to make you feel worthwhile, or in Sheila Walsh's case, something that you've looked to to tell you who you are, to give you an identity, a wilderness experience is a situation in life in which that thing, whatever that thing is for you, is either taken from you, or, you, or sometimes worse yet, you get your hands on it only to realize it's not enough and it never will be. 
And so with that in mind, what it means to meet Jesus in the wilderness, to have a wilderness experience with this king that Mark's talking about here, I hope you understand this is about so much more than just getting religious. This is about so much more than just, you know, I haven't really attended church and read my Bible and prayed regularly, so I'm going to start doing that more. It's about so much more than that. Meeting Jesus in the wilderness is about something happening in your life that causes you to see, for what it is, the functional foundation of your life. The thing that you've really been building your life on, regardless of what you would say out loud, regardless of what, what questions you get right on a test, regardless of what your parents or your teachers or your friends believe, it's about God leading you through something that causes you to see the foundation of your life for what it is, to see that you can no longer safely build a life on that foundation. And it's where you get to this point and you say, without God, I'm just not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I thought it was my career. It's not my career. It's not my money. It's not my achievements. It's not my reputation. It's not my friends. It's not having a great spouse. It's not having a great marriage. It's not having well-behaved kids. It's, it's none of that. None of that will ever be enough for me, and it's not fair for me to ask any of those things to be and do what only God can be and do for me. I'm not going to make it without the intervening power and the healing presence of God. When God brings us to that place, and historically he's got to do some pretty difficult things in our lives to get us there, when God brings us to that place, that's when we're ready to have an encounter with this king. Now, as a side note here, this is why, even though you hear me say this all the time, technically speaking, this is why it's actually inaccurate to divide the world into religious people and people who are not religious, as much as people talk about that. It's, it's just a misnomer. Uh, uh, sociologists will talk about in, 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 our, in our secular culture, one of the interesting side effects of, of secularism is that it's created a society that believes something that no society in human history has ever believed before. We now have a society of people who believe that they don't have any beliefs. And so when you hear people like, and I was literally just listening to, to part of a lecture the other day from Neil deGrasse Tyson, I don't know if you know that name, but he was kind of speculating and talking about religious people as though he was not one. It's actually inaccurate to say that anybody is not religious. And I love the way that a book I read years ago called A Meal with Jesus phrased this. It says, everyone is trying to find salvation. Meaning, you, you can call yourself religious or irreligious, modern or traditional, you know, whatever it is. Everyone's trying to find salvation. They might not ask, what must I do to be saved? But everyone has some sense of what it is that would make them satisfied, fulfilled, and accepted. And then he lists a number of things that are, are, are common forms of salvation in our culture. Success in business the admiration of men, a beautiful home, a liberated homeland, a secure future, the worship of women, a great body, wealth and prosperity, the acceptance of friends, a happy family, or a dream vacation. When you understand it in, 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 in those terms, what becomes clear is human beings are irreducibly religious. We're hope-based creatures that are designed to worship. We can't help but orient our lives around something and look to something to save us and, and make our lives worthwhile and make us feel worthwhile. The issue, as the author goes on to talk about, and the Bible makes clear in story after story after story, is that none of these man-made forms of salvation are ever going to be able to deliver for us. They have no power but to bring us to the point that Sheila Walsh, by the grace of God, got to in the quote that I read to you just a few moments ago. And it's usually, I say all this to say, it's usually only a wilderness experience that shows us that. You know, you can hear that in a sermon, you can hear that from your parents, you can hear that from, from, from somebody external to you, but, but historically speaking, in my life, and maybe it's the case in yours, it's usually only when God leads us through a wilderness experience that we finally begin to get it, and maybe, just maybe, God's brought somebody who's right there today. And before I move on from this point and get on to our last one, 
I just wanted to read you um, an account of what it sounds like, not just when you're ready to meet Jesus in the wilderness, but when you actually do. I don't think I've ever shared this with you before, but this is from Nathan Cole, who was a Connecticut farmer, uh, and he, he, he kept a dairy, uh, diary, rather. He might have kept some dairy, I don't know. He kept a diary uh, in, in the 1740s. So this has this is, survived almost 300 years now. He gave his life to Jesus hearing George Whitfield, who was a tremendous preacher. He gave his life to, G- to Jesus hearing George Whitfield um, preach outdoors in Connecticut in the year 1740. Perfectly illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. Here's what he said the moment it came home for him. <clears throat> he said, you're on the edge of your seat, aren't you? Next page. <clears throat> Come back next. No, I'd never do that too. He says, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. A heart wound. I love the way he phrased that. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. That's the language of someone who met the king in the wilderness. It's all there. All the elements are there. He says, by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up, meaning he he was able to see the foundation that he was building his life on for what it was. But with that, he realized that he was, he was looking to something or someone to be his salvation, to be his righteousness, to be what only God could be for him. And with that, he realized how much he needed Jesus, and he was never the same. That's a wilderness experience. That's where this king can be found. So that's who this king is. That's where this king can be found. But thirdly and lastly, I want to talk about why this king can be trusted. Because it doesn't do any good to talk about who he is or where he can be found if you and I aren't going to actually trust him. Before I get to my point here, let me just make an observation I'm sure you'll agree with. that um, In our culture, we are, we're about as allergic to the concept of, of authority as any culture in history. And because of that, we, we tend to really like the idea of Jesus as a shepherd we like that. We like Jesus as a teacher. We like Jesus as a guide. We like Jesus as a friend or even a lover. But you start talking about Jesus as a king, and people get really nervous about that because a king requires us to give up the right to determine our lives and to hand them over to him. And the fear there is, well, he's going to oppress us. He's going to take advantage of us. I'm going to miss out. He's not, you know, he doesn't really have my best interest in mind. And, 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 and he, People would have, would have thought that same thing in Mark's day when they first read this account because the language itself even would have sounded oppressive to them. I read it to you earlier, but the, the command where he quotes the, the prophet Isaiah, Mark quotes Isaiah as saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark's original readers knew what that meant. In ancient times, uh, when a king would travel long distance, he would send servants ahead of him to, to prepare the way, literally to make the king's road. And the king's road this is just for whatever reason, the king's road didn't have any turns in it. The king's road was to be a straight road. That's the way that you honored the king because it was beneath him to have to go around things. And what that meant is if there was a mountain in the way of the king's road, you don't move the road, you move the mountain. I don't have to tell you. In a day and age before modern engineering, that required just an incalculable amount of of effort. There was essentially armies of slaves that needed to go, and I mean, this was not a kindness, this was not an honor to these slaves. These slaves were sent ahead of the king. They had to remove these huge stones and fill these chasms and bridge these gaps. It was backbreaking labor, and who knows how many slaves in history literally were worked to death in the name of creating a straight path for the king. So when, when Mark's gospel readers read that, they would have thought, great, a new king's here. He's just like every other king. 
He's just going to oppress us. He's going to enslave us. Uh, he doesn't care about us as, as individuals. He just wants to see what he can get out of us and, you know, wring us of every drop that he can, and then, you know, we'll be all used up. But a huge theme when you read Mark's gospel from start to end, when you read all the gospel accounts from start to end, is that not only is Jesus a king unlike what his disciples were expecting, he's a king unlike any king we've ever seen before, unlike any king the world has ever seen before. And that begins to become clear at the end of Jesus' time here, just hours before the, the crucifixion, where he makes a statement that deli- he deliberately uses the language contained in this Isaiah prophecy. It's recorded for us in, actually in John's gospel, verses 1 through 6. It's a very famous monologue by Jesus. You've probably heard this before, but let me read it to you. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And from here on out, listen specifically for words that Jesus uses that hearken back to this prophecy from Isaiah. He says, I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that little monologue, which was that represented some of the final words of Jesus before he went to the cross. Jesus is deliberately using words from this Isaiah prophecy, specifically this concept of preparing the way. Only what Jesus is saying is that in his kingdom, he's the one who does the preparing. In his kingdom, he's the one who will do the back-breaking labor. And the way that Jesus did that was by going into his wilderness, which was really the ultimate wilderness for us. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but that's what the cross essentially was. It was the ultimate wilderness experience. Because on the cross, Jesus experienced ultimate hunger, thirst, and aloneness. He was stripped of everything. What you're seeing at the end of Jesus' life, specifically when he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we're seeing there is that Jesus went into the ultimate wilderness and lost God so that when he walks us through our infinitely lesser wilderness experiences, we can find him. And I've been doing this long enough to know that there are more than a few people listening to me right now, and when I talk about a wilderness experience, that is not a theory to you. That's not an intellectual concept to you. That is a lived reality for you. And maybe one of the hardest parts of your life for the last few weeks, months, or years has been this wilderness experience God's been walking you through. If that's you, I just want to say, Jesus went into the wilderness, the ultimate wilderness, and lost God so that when he walks you through your wilderness experience, you can find him. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're going to close with this. Mark knew this as well as anybody because history tells us that he literally, he was martyred for his faith. He gave not only his life, but even his death to Jesus. And with all of this language on the front end of his account, referring to Jesus as a king, Mark knew that in the end, Christianity calls you and I to do probably the most counterintuitive thing imaginable for the human heart, which is to hand over our lives to someone other than ourselves, 
to give determining power of the course of our lives over to King Jesus. And anybody who tries to do that for any length of time inevitably winds up asking themselves, how on earth can I do this? How on earth can anybody possibly trust Jesus the way this book, the way this this philosophy, this lifestyle known as Christianity calls us to? And basically Mark's entire gospel account from beginning to end is the definitive answer to that question. And so I'll leave you with this. If you're here today and you are struggling to trust Jesus for maybe the very first time, or you're struggling to trust Jesus in the wilderness experience that God's walking you through today, and you find yourself asking, how on earth can I do this? How can I trust you? If Mark were here today, he would say, I'll tell you how. Look at Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Read through this account. Find out what he was like. Find out what he said. Find out what he did. Find out who he was. See that he was willing to enter the wilderness for you. See that he was willing to lose everything for you. See that this king was willing to give up his life to prepare the way for you. Because when you do and as you do, it'll create a posture of heart in you that actually desires to prepare the way for him. This is the way of Jesus. That's it. And that's all.